Greetings and welcome to Stars and Stuff, the astronomy podcast brought to you by me, Richard J. Bartlett. In this episode, we'll review the news and planets, talk about my latest expression of astronomical nerdiness, and then I'll talk about all the planetarium programs I've ever loved. I have a confession to make. At the ripe old age of 48, nearly 49, I have finally come to terms with the fact that I'm not just a nerd, but potentially an uber-nerd. I like astronomy, obviously. I like sci-fi, especially Star Wars. But now, I must face facts. I also like stamps. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Richard J. Bartlett, and I am a stamp collector. It started innocently enough. I bought a framed set of stamps depicting the solar system because, well, I thought it would look good on the wall. And it does. Then I bought a framed set of stamps to commemorate the New Horizons space probe passing Pluto in 2015 because, well, I thought it would look good with the set of solar system stamps. And it does. And then there were the stamps to celebrate the total solar eclipse in 2017 and yes, you guessed it, another framed set. They also look good on the wall. More than that, I bought a couple of loose stamps because if you press your thumb against them, an image of the full moon appears against the silhouette of the sun. That's exciting. Then it was stamps of Sally Ride, America's first female astronaut, and stamps from the US, Canada and Jersey for the 50th anniversary of the moon landings. And then there were the stamps to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the Royal Astronomical Society. And being nerdy, more than a few sets of Star Wars stamps and a nice booklet for the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. Just a few days ago, I received three sets of stamps from a seller on Amazon. The first was from 1969, depicting Apollo 11 on the moon. The second, from 1974, celebrates Skylab, America's first space station. But then, I had an unexpected surprise. The seller, a Mr. Douglas Johnson, had sent me a set of Project Mercury stamps from 1962, totally free of charge. What a nice man. I shall have to send him a book. Nerdiness has ensued, full of force, as I've searched online for others. The vast majority can be bought for pennies, with other, more collectible sets and first day covers often going for just a couple of bucks. I will have to buy an album to put them in. It's not that I think they'll be worth a huge amount of money in the future, but I'm a visual person. I like to look at things, which partly explains my fascination with astronomy. More than that, many of these stamps are finely designed and they all tell a story. They're a part of history. In my defense, Aren't we all a little nerdy about something? Isn't there something that you'd happily spend money or time on? Maybe it's DIY, or baking, or gardening, or astronomy. And besides, with thousands of stamps available, my wife is happy too, because now she says she doesn't have to stress about what to get me for my birthday. Observations have revealed for the first time that a star orbiting the supermassive black hole at the centre of the Milky Way moves just as predicted by Einstein's general theory of relativity. Its orbit is shaped like a rosette and not like an ellipse as predicted by Newton's theory of gravity. This long sought after result was made possible by increasingly precise measurements over nearly 30 years, which have enabled scientists to unlock the mysteries of the behemoth lurking at the heart of our galaxy. For people who are able to work remotely during this time of social distancing, video conferences and emails have helped bridge the gap. The same holds true for the team behind NASA's Curiosity Mars rover. They are dealing with the same challenges of so many remote workers. 
quieting the dog, sharing space with partners and family, remembering to step away from the desk from time to time. With a twist, operating on Mars. On March 20th, 2020, nobody on the team was present at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California, where their mission is based. It was the first time the rover's operations were planned while the team was completely remote. Two days later, the commands they had sent to Mars executed as expected, resulting in curiosity drilling a rock sample at a location called Edinburgh. Researchers using the Gemini North Telescope on Hawaii's Mauna Kea have detected the most energetic wind from any quasar ever measured. This outflow, which is traveling at nearly 13% of the speed of light, carries enough energy to dramatically impact star formation across an entire galaxy. The extragalactic tempest lay hidden in plain sight for 15 years before being unveiled by innovative computer modeling and new data from the International Gemini Observatory. A team of transatlantic scientists, using reanalyzed data from NASA's Kepler Space Telescope, has discovered an Earth-sized exoplanet orbiting in its star's habitable zone, the area around a star where a rocky planet could support liquid water. Scientists discovered this planet, called Kepler 1649c, when looking through old observations from Kepler, which the agency retired in 2018. While previous searches with a computer algorithm misidentified it, researchers reviewing Kepler data took a second look at the signature and recognized it as a planet. Out of all the exoplanets found by Kepler, this distant world, located 300 light years from Earth, is most similar to Earth in size and estimated temperature. This newly revealed world is only 1.06 times larger than our own planet. Also, the amount of starlight it receives from its host star is 75% of the amount of light Earth receives from our Sun, meaning the exoplanet's temperature may be similar to our planet's as well. But unlike Earth, it orbits a red dwarf. Though none have been observed in this system, the type of star is known for stellar flare-ups that may make a planet's environment challenging for any potential life. Speaking of life, where did life first form on Earth? Some scientists think it could have been around hydrothermal vents that may have existed at the bottom of the ocean four and a half billion years ago. In a new paper in the journal Astrobiology, scientists at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory describe how they mimicked possible ancient undersea environments with a complex experimental setup. They showed that under extreme pressure, fluid from these ancient seafloor cracks mixed with ocean water could have reacted with minerals from the hydrothermal vents to produce organic molecules, the building blocks that compose nearly all life on Earth. In particular, the research lays important groundwork for in-depth studies of such ocean worlds as Saturn's moon Enceladus and Jupiter's moon Europa, which are both thought to have liquid water oceans buried beneath thick icy crusts and may hide hydrothermal activity similar to what's being simulated at JPL. This area of research belongs to a field of study known as astrobiology, and the work was done by the JPL IC Worlds team as part of the former NASA Astrobiology Institute. CHEOPS, the European Space Agency's new exoplanet mission, has successfully completed its almost three months of in-orbit commissioning, exceeding expectations for its performance. The satellite, which will commence routine science operations by the end of April, has already obtained promising observations of known exoplanet hosting stars with many exciting discoveries to come. Launched in December 2019, CHEOPS, or the Characterizing Exoplanet Satellite, opened its eye to the universe at the end of January and shortly after took its first intentionally blurred images of stars. 
The deliberate defocusing is at the core of the mission's observing strategy, which improves the measurement precision by spreading the light coming from distant stars over many pixels of its detector. Precision is key in today's exoplanet research. More than 4,000 planets, and counting, are known to be orbiting stars other than the Sun. A key follow-on is to start to characterize these planets, providing constraints on their structure, formation, and evolution. A group of citizen astronomers scattered all over the world has just demonstrated how a network of digital unistellar EV scopes can work together to deliver the first of its kind crowd-generated images of Comet Atlas while it's disintegrating. Discovered in December, Comet Atlas was expected to become the brightest comet of 2020 visible to the naked eye. Several days ago, however, astronomers began to suspect that the comet had split into multiple pieces when it began dimming rapidly. At Unistellar, this created a unique opportunity to summon their community of citizen astronomers together to collect a high-quality image of this beautiful but dying cosmic phenomenon. Interstellar comet Borisov is providing a glimpse of another star system's planetary building blocks using new observations from NASA's Hubble Space Telescope. Borisov is the first known comet to originate from a different star system than our own. Measurements find that it has an unusual abundance of carbon monoxide, largely unlike comets belonging to our own solar system. Researchers say its unusual composition points to a likely birthplace of a carbon-rich circumstellar disk around a cool red dwarf class of star. These observations are a prime opportunity to sample the chemistry of the material in a primordial disk around another star. What astronomers thought was a planet beyond our solar system has now seemingly vanished from sight suggesting that what was heralded as one of the first exoplanets to ever be discovered with direct imaging likely never existed. Astronomers conclude that NASA's Hubble Space Telescope was instead looking at an expanding cloud of very fine dust particles from two icy bodies that smashed into each other. Hubble came along too late to witness the suspected collision, but may have captured its aftermath. The missing in action planet was last seen orbiting a star former halt 25 light years away. Let's take a look at where you can find the moon and planets at the end of the month. After a spell in the morning sky, Mercury is lost within the sun's glare, but will emerge into the evening twilight in about a month's time. Uranus is also invisible, and will be in conjunction with the sun on the 26th. Venus is also edging closer to the sun, and slips from 42 to 40 degrees elongation, but maintains a steady magnitude of negative 4.5. Telescopically, you will notice its crescent slimming as its disk illumination reduces from 33% to 25% by the end of the month. Jupiter, then Saturn, and then Mars rise after midnight. Jupiter is a little more than 95 degrees west of the Sun, so it will appear towards the south in the pre-dawn twilight. Saturn appears to its left, while coppery Mars appears over the southeastern horizon. Mars is slowly improving, and is marginally brighter than Saturn, but the chances are you won't notice a difference. The moon turns new on the 22nd, which is perfect timing for the Lyrid meteors, which we'll get to in just a moment. You can catch a crescent moon below Venus on the 25th, and look out for it just to the left of the planet on the following night. So let's talk about the Lyrids. It's been nearly four months since we last had a major meteor shower, and we're in luck this month as the new moon coincides with the date the meteors reach their maximum. That occurs from the evening of the 21st to the morning of the 22nd, and as with almost all meteor showers, your best chance of seeing a few shooting stars will be in the early hours of the 22nd. 
More specifically, the maximum is predicted to occur at about 2 a.m. Eastern Time. Under ideal conditions, you could expect to see about 18 an hour, but realistically that number could be anywhere between 10 and 15. They can be bright, and while they don't typically leave a train, there's a decent chance you might see a fireball. Many moons ago, when I was in my late teens, I owned an Atari ST home computer. I thought this thing was the bee's knees. It had 512k of memory and a floppy disk drive, which made it pretty damn awesome. I particularly liked playing Outrun and a space exploration game whose name I can't remember. And no, it wasn't Elite or Captain Blood, although I did like the funky music by Jean-Michel Jarre. I also specifically remember having a planetarium program, but I never used it to see what was in the night sky that night. Instead, I used to see what the sky was like on the night I was born, or what the sky would be like on October 21st, 2015, or the sky from Los Angeles, November 2019, assuming it wasn't raining of course. In other words, I time travelled. Besides mucking about like this, I also used it to do a little detective work. At that time, I didn't know exactly when I'd first gotten interested in the stars. I only remembered that, one Christmas Eve, we were in the car on our way to pick up my great aunt, who would be staying with us until Boxing Day. You can imagine how much my dad used to love this annual event. I remember being in the back seat of the car with my brother Colin. He was two years older than me, and he'd taken a vague interest in the stars, but at the time I couldn't remember why. What I did remember was a full moon with Jupiter, Taurus and Orion nearby. My brother was able to point them out to me, and as the car turned, so I viewed the sky turned as well. It was like being in a planetarium. All I knew was that it was in the late 1970s. I thought I was probably about 8 at the time, so I tried Christmas Eve 1979. The planetarium software showed me that the moon was a waxing crescent, and Jupiter was in Leo, quite some way from Taurus as I remembered. I tried 1978, but that wasn't a match either. Another year, and it was Christmas Eve 1977. The moon was 99% full, and Jupiter was little to the east and in Gemini. Mars, apparently, was just climbing over the eastern horizon, but neither me or my brother was aware of that at the time. I was only 6 years old, but I remembered it well, some 12 years later, and I still remember it 42 years after the event. That's the moment I became interested in the stars. I didn't know what they were, but I wanted to find out. After my Atari ST, I owned an Amstrad PCW word processor, which I used in my totally unsuccessful career as a science fiction writer. To give myself some credit, I hope, I had some decent enough ideas, I just lacked the skill to actually execute them. Unfortunately, the Amstrad didn't have a planetarium program, but pretty much every type of computer I've owned since then has. In 1997, I bought a laptop from my friend David. It cost me £300 and it was as thick as a phone book. With Windows 95, 8MB of RAM, a 233MHz processor and a 256MB of hard disk space, I thought this thing was a beast. And since it coincided with my discovery of the internet, I was able to download Planetarium shareware for free. One in particular was a gem of a program, called Skyglobe. It rendered the night sky for almost any date in history, and even took precession into account. With Skyglobe, you could time travel tens of thousands of years into the future or into the past. In other words, you could simulate the night sky as the ancient Egyptians would have seen it, with Thuban in Draco, not Polaris, as the pole star. Incidentally, if you want to try it for yourself, 
you can run it via an online emulator at tinyurl.com forward slash skyglobe. This was also back in the day when magazines used to put a CD-ROM on the cover. It was usually chock full of freeware and shareware and you had to carefully avoid signing up for AOL, but occasionally there was something really useful on it. That's how I got three copies of Redshift 2 and Starry Night. I can't remember much about Redshift 2, but I used Starry Night extensively. More specifically, this was back when I used to have my own website, Starlore, and the creators of Starry Night had given me permission to use the software to generate and publish the star charts from my site. Two laptops and five years later, and I had a Palm PDA. These things were cool. At a time when people still used to sling their cell phones into a belt holster like a gun, I loved that you could just easily slip it into your pocket. I know they were meant to be an electronic personal organizer, but I didn't have much to organize, so I used it for games instead. And of course, the obligatory planetarium program. Now I could check the night sky almost any time I wanted, without having to wait until I got home. Much nerdiness ensued. In the end, PDAs went the way of the dinosaur, as smartphones exploded, sometimes literally, onto the scene. Since then, there have been a multitude of planetarium apps developed for both Apple and Android devices. Even Redshift has survived the past 20 years and has been adapted for your smartphone. The quality of these programs has vastly improved over the past few decades. Not only can the apps produce a realistic simulation on the night sky, but by pointing your device at the sky, they can also help you to identify that mysterious star or planet that's caught your eye. Try doing that with an Antares ST. So here's this episode's trivia question. You can get over 700 like it from my book, The Daily Astronomical Space and Quiz Book, which is available on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle format. So here it is. Which planet has a day that lasts longer than its year? Is it A. Mercury, B. Venus, C. Mars, or D. Jupiter? As always, I'll give you the answer in just a few moments. The answer to a trivia question is B, Venus. The planet takes nearly 225 days to orbit the Sun, but takes 243 days to spin once upon its axis. That's it for another episode. As always, if you liked it, please subscribe and tell your friends. You can find Stars and Stuff on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple and Google, among others, or by going to tinyurl.com forward slash snspod. If you're interested in my books, you can find them at tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-us in the United States and tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-uk in the United Kingdom. You're also welcome to email me at astronomywriter at gmail.com with any comments or questions you might have. And don't forget to come join the Stars and Stuff Facebook group at tinyurl.com forward slash SNS Facebook group. Thanks for listening, and until we talk again, clear skies to you.